With your indulgence, I would like to begin the, the introduction of our two distinguished and fabulous uh, writers uh, by talking a little bit about my experience as a Korean-American. Um, there is a word in Korean that is said to embody uh, Korea's national character, but is also said to be untranslatable, and that word is Han. Uh, some near equivalents are heartbreak, uh, sorrow, pain, uh, but it's the kind of heart deep heartbreak that is c connected uh, with generational history and even defines a worldview. You know, having suffered colonial conquest, civil war, the division of the country, military coups and dictatorships all in one century, uh, Han remains a pervasive presence for Koreans both abstractly and deep within people, and perhaps most tellingly, it is often expressed or exorcised in the most self-defeating ways possible, so that it, those attempts actually uh, perpetuate Han, as though nobody could escape its curse, as, as though no one could, um, to borrow an allusion from Gina Nahai's uh, novel, The Luminous Heart of Jonah S., live the life of Jay Gatsby and become uh, born again or self-made. That's an American dream uh, to people elsewhere or to, to immigrants, uh, even as you embrace the American dream. There is this sense of deep connection to a certain sorrow that you can't outlive. Um, now, now, when I read Frank McCourt's Angelus Ashes about uh, the author's childhood in, in impoverished Ireland uh, and all the drinking done in the name of Ireland's suffering at the hands of the English, I thought, well, you could just switch Irish and Korean and change the, the brand of alcohol and, and, and nobody would notice. Um, and, and coming upon Salar Abdo's Tehran at Twilight and Gina Nahai's Luminous Heart of Jonah S., I had similar thoughts, though, of course, uh, the unique elements that define their stories are the most fascinating. Um, though their novels travel between Iran and the US, Tehran, with its connection to generational sorrow, but also to so much else, uh, remains at their heart. One might say that Tehran acquires a life of its own in the novels as the originary center that continues to give birth to new stories with a wonderful mix of loving fascination as well as clear-sightedness that exposes the city's underbelly, along with touches of humane wit and the magical realism of fable. Our two writers today tell sagas that are heartbreaking, uplifting, dark, and optimistic, but always fascinating. So it's, it's a great honor to have them with us today. Our first speaker will be, the first reader will be Gina Nahai, uh, who is the author of, of Cry of the Peacock, 1992, which told for the first time in any Western language the 3,000-year story of the Jewish people of Iran. It won the Los Angeles Arts Council Award for Fiction. Her second novel, Moonlight on the the Avenue of Faith, 1999, was a finalist for many awards in the US and abroad. It was also a number one LA Times bestseller and was named as one of the best books of the year by the Los Angeles Times. Her th third novel, Sunday Silence, 2001, was also an LA Times bestseller and a best book of the year. 
Her fourth novel, Caspian Rain, published in 2007, was also an LA Times bestseller. I think there's a recurrent <laughs> theme here. And was named one of the best books of the year by the Chicago Tribune and won the Persian Heritage Foundation's award. Her most recent novel, The Luminous Heart of Jonah S., was published in 2014. She is also a professor of creative writing at the University of Southern California. Salar Abdo is also, also an Iranian-American, is a novelist and essayist. He is the author of the novel The Poet Game, which focuses on a young agent sent by a top-secret Iranian government agency to infiltrate a group of Islamic extremists in New York in order to keep them from acts of terror that might draw the U.S. into a war in the Middle East. This novel was presciently written and then published a year before 9-11. He is also the author of Opium, 2004, a novel set along the Afghan-Iran border during the Soviet occupation of, of Afghanistan. And serendipitously, he is also the editor and translator of the anthology Tehran Noir, Noir uh, 2014, a series, a, the Noir series, a series to which the originator of our distinguished writer series, Colin Channer, has also contributed uh, with a volume called Kingston Noir. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Salar Abdo's latest novel is Tehran at Twilight. Uh, for his prose, he has won the New York Foundation for the Arts Award in 2008 and the National Endowment for the Arts Award in, in 2010. He is also a, a, a director of the graduate program in creative writing um, at the City University of New York. So please uh, join me in welcoming first Gina Nahai. Thank you so much for being here, and, and thank you, Jane, Carol, Eugene, everyone, for, for inviting me and inviting me at the same time as Salar, who's, I'm a huge fan of, of, of his writing, so I'm very happy to be reading with him. Um, I was just saying earlier, it's a little bit cruel to have us read uh, before a classics uh, professor and a Shakespearean professor. <laughs> you know, may, may, the standards may be a, a, a little high. I'll just tell you a tiny bit about the book uh, and, and then read for about 10 minutes. Uh, um, uh, um, the story takes place partly in Los Angeles, partly in Iran. Uh, the, there's this mystery at the, at the heart of the story uh, that uh, I won't tell you now because then the reading will get messed up. But there's a mystery, and the part that I am going to read is toward the end of the book uh, and uh, relates to that, to the central mystery. Um, really, it's a, a story about exile and immigration and uh, the ways in which America changes immigrants and the way in which immigrants have changed, at least California or Los Angeles. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the narrative takes place, you know, revolves around this issue of what it's like uh, to come from an older culture, but also around the issue of what it's like to be an American in places like LA, like California, like the East Coast that are not really America. You know, there's their own little country. Uh, and um, uh, there are some <clears throat> some touches of fantasy here. Uh, 
in case things start getting strange as I, as I read. Um, uh, Angela, who's mentioned here, is is the is the protagonist. Uh, she's a she's a, an attorney who's uh, given up uh, in the practice of law and uh, who has wanted to write a book and then eventually just started uh, writing a column online that hardly anybody reads. <laughs> Seeing my own future right up close. <laughs> The rabbi brought the boy, all four foot five of him, in that big yellow t-shirt he wore every day, and that he refused to part with at night, clung to as if it were a layer of skin or an extra limb, which, given his story, should not have shocked anyone. And even Angela, who had never been at a loss for words, didn't know what to say to him. He was a beautiful child, those golden red loops of hair, the long curved eyelashes that cast a shadow over his cheekbones the white skin and red lips. But there was also an eeriness about him, a sense that he was not quite real, that he was a boy in a painting somewhere with a cold climate and an artist who longed for sunlight. His name was Jonah, and he might as well have been thrown overboard into a storm and washed ashore on Mulholland Drive in LA. It was Friday afternoon right before sundown, and the first thing the rabbi said to Angela was that they were going to have to spend the night because it had taken him five hours in traffic to get to her from Riverside, and now it was almost Shabbat. He couldn't drive till after dark Saturday. And it was very nice where she lived and all up on top of this mountain, except he hadn't seen a motel or even a gas station within an hour's walking distance. So would she mind very much if they had camped, he had brought their sleeping bags, on her floor. There was also a change of clothes and a blue pillow the boy liked to sleep on. She let them stay, even though she realized the rabbi had planned it this way. It was his idea that they should meet at her house and that it should be on a Friday. All she had wanted was to see the boy for herself. She would have driven out to them, would have preferred it that way, but the rabbi was insistent. This made her think there was more to the story than Leon knew or was able to relate. The rabbi offered to go pick up some food in the valley. He wasn't kosher, he said, and neither was the boy, so any old place would do. But he was especially fond of Persian food, you know, that white rice with sour cherries and lamb, for example. And was there a restaurant nearby that delivered? While they waited for the food, the boy sat hunched on the sofa in his yellow t-shirt, leafing through a National Geographic with pictures of elephants, because Angela didn't have a TV or any children's books. The rabbi used the occasion to tell Angela more about myself. My name is Cornelius Cohen. I was born and raised near Watts Towers right here in LA. No, I'm not of Ethiopian descent. My birth parents weren't Jewish. They were plain old black folk from, from Africa. And no, I wasn't adopted by a Jewish family. I grew up in foster care, got into trouble, and ended up at this place called Beit Shuva down on Venice near Robertson. It's a Jewish rehab, not Orthodox, no, not at all. The head rabbi is an ex-con, in fact, but they saved my life. I have a rabbinic degree, but no congregation. I play in a hip-hop group and work for the state, taking care of kids who've been abandoned like I was. Cohen is what I chose for myself. At 10 o'clock, they were still waiting for the food, the driver having been hopelessly lost somewhere on Mulholland Drive, a 21-mile-long, two-lane highway with hardly any street lights and dozens of narrow streets with no signs. 
One of them was even called No Name Alley, and more than a handful were not paved because that's how the owners wanted it, secluded and difficult to find, why the movie stars and music moguls and porn kings made their homes here. Faye Dunaway had grown old along these cliffs, Warren Beatty had finally married, and Bruce Willis had licked his wounds when his own marriage broke up. This was where Roman Polanski raped a 13-year-old girl, and he did it in Jack Nicholson's house. So who would blame the poor Iranian driver from the Persian restaurant for getting lost in his rattling, rattling old Camaro, trying to read a map in the dark with his scratched-up driving glasses? In the end, Angela defrosted some Trader Joe's dumplings in the microwave and put them on a plate in, on the kitchen counter. The boy had fallen asleep on the couch with a half-eaten sandwich on the end table, his head resting on the blue pillow that he clutched with, his, with both arms, and the rest of him barely visible under the down comforter Angela had taken from her own bed. As soon as the meal was over, Cornelius Cohen asked if Angela might prepare some coffee. Unless you have that good Persian tea they brew with cardamom and seeds, and I understand lately, rose petals. It amazed Angela that she was so unresisting to the rabbi taking such, such liberties. It was as if she thought she could avert the impact of some ghastly blow by letting someone else take charge. They sat at the wooden, long wooden table that Angela's handyman, Senor Manuel, had built on what turned out to be, his marriage be damned, an expression of his yearning for her. He was a Mexican guy with too many missing teeth and an affinity for fabric starch and cologne. You could smell him driving down Angela Street from the top of Mulholland, and you could hear the crinkling of his overly starched white painter's pants and white cotton t-shirt from the driveway. He walked with the cowboy's gait and spoke in lyrical sentences that were wasted on Angela because she had no time or appreciation for his feminine side. She spoke only functional Spanish, and he didn't know the word of English. And here was Senor all she wanted was to have a room painted or a dripping faucet replaced. And here was Senor Manuel admiring the sunrise from the terrace or gazing on the lights on Ventura Boulevard late at night, lamenting the intolerance of the wife who kept throwing him out of the house every time she caught him and another woman, bringing Angela roses and refusing to accept payment for his work if only she would let him take her to a nice dinner. So a few minutes later, uh, Jonah wakes up. Jonah stood in the middle of the room with his eyes still closed and the blue yellow pillow tucked under his right arm, a silver pin of light glowing, fluorescent, in the center of his stomach beneath the big yellow t-shirt. He's always been like this, the rabbi said softly. I believe it's the divine in him, God's light shining through his best creatures. Slowly, as Angela gaped at him, the space around Jonah fell away, the world getting darker and more empty until it was just him, a small incandescent miracle, and the setting realization for Angela of what this meant. They walked Jonah to the couch and helped him lie down, then stood around and watched the light glint with every breath. The deeper they sailed into the night, the brighter the light became and the greater the possibility appeared to Angela that it was indeed true what no one had contemplated for a hundred years, Raphael's son being just that. The inconceivable may be real, the pretense fact. Slowly, she saw fireflies and moths and other night creatures appear in the garden, 
small, solitary lights at first, and then suddenly, flurries of them, like flashing bulbs the size of a pinhead, flapping their wings against the glass of the closed door, and soon so many of them had gathered that the garden was lit up. A few minutes before dawn, Jonah woke up again and came to the window, put his little face with those large caramel eyes to the glass as if to soak in the warmth generated by the incandescence outside. And when he saw Angela, awed and immobile, trying to get the measure of him and what he meant, he smiled at her as if in prayer, believe in me, and turned halfway to open the door, letting thousands of insects swarm the room just as they were about to turn pale in the first light. That was at five in the morning. An hour later, the room was awash in color, all the walls and the ceiling, the tops of the cabinets and every empty space now dyed in startling hues, a technicolor shimmer that, left, that felt strangely, quietly alive. In the yard, the July sky was clear as sky, the, warm, the air warm even for Los Angeles in summer. Angela got up from her chair and walked toward the sliding glass door. The sound of her steps on the Spanish tile floor struck against the silence in the room, shaking the crack open somewhere in the world, because the next thing they all saw was the rush of color that peeled off the walls and the furnishings and gathered into a cloud above Jonah, hovering like a prayer, then glided in a wave like the giant wings of a manta ray in a choreographed flight that darkened the doorway then the terrace. Against the bleached floor of the deck, the early morning light swept across like watercolor off a page, staining it forever in their memories. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, I've been thinking about this notion of Han and uh, it's really poignant and I can really relate to it as can all of us Persians and I have to dig deeper into that. Uh, it's an honor to be with Gina who is a friend and a great writer. Um, I'm going to read two sh very short snippets for you today from towards the beginning of the book. This is the story of a, a man called Reza. He's the main character of the novel. He's called Reza Malik. And he's, uh, he, he, after the revolution as a teenager, he ends up here and he sort of stays and keeps going to school. He becomes, he gets his doctorate. But because there are no jobs at the time, he, he goes back to the Middle East for a while and works as an interpreter during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq with various Western journalists. His best friend, with whom he went to university, Sina, he goes back to the Middle East. He doesn't stay, and he becomes uh, he becomes an enemy of the United States and goes to extreme lengths to, you know, to execute that which he believes in. So they, there are two men, two Persians, who go very separate ways, even though they were best friends. And the first, um, the first snippet is about when his Reza Malik's uh, friend first contacts him after a long time because he needs his help. And then a few pages later, uh, it's a, 
exchange between Reza Malik again and an American journalist called Clara Vikingstadt, with whom he had worked in Iraq before, uh, a few years before he became a professor back in New York. And so I'm going to just read from these two exchanges uh, between Reza and these two people. He'd spent a weekend at a think tank near DuPont Circle in DC with an array of retired American military types and political science professors in and out of government service. Now on the 105 train back to New York City, Reza Malek, who had once, who had once seen an angry crowd pull a man out of a Baghdad liquor shop and set him on fire, sat in a nearly empty car nursing a poorly hidden bourbon mini bottle out of his laptop case, his hands slightly shaking and his mind edgy with the recollection of someone's blown up face. The rattle of his cell phone brought a bit of relief. I need you here for something. It was Sina Vafa calling from Tehran. Just a minute ago, I was thinking of that time in Mosul, four years ago, remember? Three years, actually. The guy went up in the air 20, yard, 20 yards in front of us. When he came back down, his nose was in one place and the rest of him was, well, elsewhere. Sina Vafa always put on a hard-boiled front like these things didn't bother him, and maybe they didn't. But they, but they did Malik. In fact, everything bothered Malik. He was no warrior like Sina pretended to be. Malik was a bookworm who had found himself in the wrong war at the right time. This had made something of an academic career for him afterward. In a way, the war had strangely enough saved his life but he had also seen things he'd sooner forget, like the image of that burning man outside the liquor store over there in the Dora Quarter, or that almost perfectly intact nose in Mosul, Iraq. One minute their handsome young Kurdish guide, so full of life, so full of enthusiasm, was walking 20 steps ahead of them, talking about his wedding plans, and the next minute he had stepped on something and his face was gone like a mask peeled right off. How was a guy supposed to negotiate something like that with himself? He wanted to ask Sina this, but the line had gone silent and the distant connection was cut off. So Malek's mind wandered while waiting for Sina's redial to Mosul, to Baghdad, to Tehran, and to, of course, his best friend Sina, Sina's hardening his fast track to becoming such a dedicated, sworn enemy of the Americans. It was something Malik had tried to put out of his mind, as if Sina's soul was just another burnt corpse on the side of the road where a planted bomb had gone off. So, if there's time, I'll read a little bit more. So then, we, I'll jump ahead a couple of pages, and then it's his exchange with the with the American journalists he had done work with. Back in, New and uh, as, as I read before, he had just come back from DC from a think tank where he had actually run into Clara, so they also that's mentioned here. Back in New York, Malek had a few hours of sleep before the phone woke him up. It was Clara Weikingstadt. 
Contrary to the girth of that last name, Clara was a small woman, a brunette in her late 40s with intelligent brown eyes that saw the world mostly in terms of not being denied her will. Malik had spent a good portion of his adult life chasing a PhD in Middle Eastern studies, yet of all the people he had ever met in the business, Clara had a special way with the region. She had an ambition to match that too. She had saved Malik's behind, literally, in Baghdad in the spring of 2004. And for that, he would always owe her. It was good seeing you again, Rez, she said. I want to propose something to you. Let me guess, you're going back to Tehran and you need an interpreter. Who better than you, Rez? He'd be glad to oblige, he told her. In Baghdad, she had flexed all of her 5-1 frame and stood up to that overzealous U.S. Army staff sergeant who had thought Malik was acting suspicious. That's my translator you are arresting and I won't let you do it. And when the man had tried to shove her out of the way and ordered a couple of his amped up 19-year-olds in, in uniform to take Haji away, she had bluffed that this story would be primetime news eight hours later in America. By then she was screaming, and that, my friend, will be the end of your shining military career. It was enough to get Malik off the hook, enough to start him loving her for it. Yet a couple of years later, back in the States, he had quickly become just another source for her, just another interpreter, another guy Clara had worked with in some messy corner of the world for, world for a while. Malik was a number, a face, a local guy you slept with a few times because the sound of not-so-distant mortars was amazingly conducive to casual sex. Did all this mean he resented her? By God, no. He was the willing dust under her feet, as the Persian said. She had done him a solid once, and no, he would not forget it. He said, you know, Clara, I've been following your latest articles, but really, what's in Guatemala for you? Death squads, kidnappings, the usual stuff. I just had to get out of the Middle East for a while, Rez. You know how that is. You did the same. After a pause, she said, I'm sorry I couldn't talk to you more over the weekend. She had been a guest, guest at that think tank, too, but she had come with a man, an older, suavely condescending photojournalist, who apparently was in the pantheon of his profession, one of those salt and pepper Hemingway types whose resumes say they've covered three dozen wars in 140 countries and they don't mind you knowing all about it. Still, Malik had had dinner with them Saturday night and Clara had said she would call and so she had. It's all right, he said. We have pl we'll have plenty of time to talk in Tehran unless His Majesty, your photographer friend, is coming there with you. She laughed. He's just a friend, and anyway, the Iranians won't give him a visa. They want you all to themselves, Clara, he joked tiredly, and I can't say I blame them. In Washington, she had asked what he was up to these days, and he had told her he'd settled into that teaching job in New York. Well, it looks like you landed on your feet in America, Rez. It beats chasing stories, always worried about your next job, doesn't it? You found your niche here, stick to it. Once more, he thought of how in Clara's line of work, you came upon people that you gigged with for a while, for a bit. 
Sometimes the intimacy became exaggerated because of circumstance, like that spring in Baghdad. You worked together, you slept together, and then once an assignment was finished, you went your separate ways. Maybe you stayed in contact for a while, but life took over and the contact became pale. It was what it was. Even affairs were on a fast clock that way. It's true, it's a safe job, Clara, he said. I don't know, <coughs> I don't know how long it will last, though. Why? They insist I write another book. She laughed again, this time like he had said something dumb. Rez, that's what you're supposed to do when you assume the title of professor. How many years did you go to school for that? And if I don't write one, and soon they'll shake my hand and say it was nice having you here. They needed a resident sand negro for a while, he said, emphasizing the words for effect, maybe to fill their hiring quotas. Now that they filled it, stop that talk, Rez. You sound like a nag. Clara, he persisted, I was, you know, kind of liking my life lately. It's simple, it's peaceful. You'll hear a gunshot now and then in my neighborhood, but no RPGs, no IEDs. It's a veritable Eden up here in Harlem. I don't want to lose it. I really, really don't. You won't, but if worse comes to worse, you can always head down to Washington and work for one of those think tanks. God knows there's enough of them. I could even put in a good word for you. I got connections. She was being kind. Her kindness was real. You mean I could so sit in some cubicle every day and churn out report after report for washed out colonels and generals while the world burns? The world is always burning, Rez. Don't take it so personal. Thank you. <laughs> Well, <clears throat> thank you for um, that reading. Uh, maybe I can <clears throat> begin is, uh, by referring to the, the two passages that, that you read. Um, in the uh, passage from the luminous heart, um, the, the literally luminous heart of Jonah, the character, connects him, as we discover, to our surprise, and I don't want to give anything away, uh, to the past. Mm and to Iran, to Tehran, to, uh, a, hist to a history uh, that precedes the family, the Suleiman family to America. And then in the phone calls that Reza receives, he's in some ways being called by the past, by Tehran, uh, by Sina, um, even though I guess he had stayed, spent time in America. Sina is still calling from Tehran, as I recall. So the past keeps <coughs> calling. Um, or there's a continuity with the past that is emphasized in those moments, um, one at the beginning of the novel and one at the end of the novel. Um, and continuity, it seems to me, is associated, associated with both despair and hope in, in both novels. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the understanding of cultural uh, and generational continuity uh, in your novels, uh, especially f from the point of view of Iranian-American writers who are writing in America. Was that too di convoluted a question? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Is this working? Yeah. Uh, first, the matter of, uh, from the point of view of Iranians writing in America, most of what I have seen other Iranians write is uh, uh, about 
the last 30, 40 years. Mm. Um, as in um, what happened in Iran right after the revolution, right coming up to the revolution. It doesn't delve very far into the past. But, uh, so I can't really speak about about that sensibility, whether whether how how informed it is by the past, but what I know culturally is that we are so um, uh, we are so intertwined with the the acts and the and the thoughts of the generations before us. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, my mother always talked about how. Uh, if you if you do anything wrong, that you are actually hurting not just yourself and your family now, but for five or six generations after. <laughs> and, right, you laugh, right? But um, and they always talk about. I mean, that's why I have all this rich material. One thing I have to say is everything I've ever written is is true. All the characters are real. All these characters you read about here are real people, and uh, all the events, even the most outrageous ones or real events, uh, seriously. So sometimes I've had to tamp down reality just to you know, make it a little bit believable. Um, but uh, I, you know, all the great stories that I heard were, were so great because they encompassed so much of past generations, right? But as, as Eugene says, um, first of all, one day a few years ago, I actually went on Wikipedia and looked up the Ten Commandments. And lo and behold, the, there is a commandment that says, I am a jealous God, and if you offend me, I will avenge myself upon four and five generations of your children. So God said that, my mother was right. <laughs> but um, so what happens, though, is that because of that, there is a sense of connection and uh, and. Uh, not just to people who are dead, but also to the living that creates a rootedness and a community, even in, even in exile. Um, and that's the good part. The bad part is that because of that, you are also shackled with so much that has, you know, that is not of your own doing and that you really have no control over either for the better or for the worse. Yeah, I'll answer that. Uh, another way, uh, regarding uh, work from uh, Iranian Americans, uh, there's there's been a flowering, especially lately. But for a long time, uh, particularly around 9/11, and for a few years after that, and also before that, there were a lot of memoir-type writing. Yeah, and some of them got a lot of mileage, and. Um, uh, I happen to think they're not really representative of Iran of today that we speak of, but there was that uh, chasm that happened with the revolution, and I think it stayed in the cultural psyche. And when Gina says a lot of people have written about the last 30, 40 years, that just sort of really encompasses the revolution and soon thereafter. Uh, what I've tried to do in my own writing is to sort of skirt that and uh, <clears throat> it's because of the way I live my own life is that a lot of my life actually takes place in, in Iran and not just Iran but the greater Middle East. So I'm someone who lives in between, literally lives in between worlds and uh, because of that there is a presence 
in, in my novels, particularly this last one, uh, that uh, with the premise of the past that keeps catching up with you nevertheless. Because as you say, uh, you, know, you know, once you have a past, let's say you have a character who has been you know, doing this in the Middle East, you know, it's, it's like being connected to the mob. You can never get away from <laughs> it. Just, people are always going to come Suck back, back and they're going to call in their chips, you know, yeah. and, and uh, God calls in his chips. <laughs> you know, so that's, yeah. So, and in the Tehran Noir that I, not the novel, but the anthology I edited, uh, Gina, Gina is the only person that I selected to, uh, to write uh, who doesn't actually live in Iran. All the other writers live in Iran. And I tra edited and translated all the stories myself. And you won Best Translator Award this past year. Uh, thank you. And the reason I chose, uh, just as a side note, the reason I ch you know, wanted Gina to write about Los Angeles was because, in a way, Los Angeles became an extension of Tehran because of all the things that she actually writes about in, uh, in, her, in her novel. But if you look at that collection and if you look at the issues of the writers and the things they write about, um, you know, they, it covers the range of issues that are the issues of writers in Iran today. And so much of it has to do with, you know, the past, whether the past catching up with you or you just not being able to deal with the past. While we're on this, I tried to give, uh, in, and I think it was one sentence, uh, some sense of, the, of how Iran is, or Tehran in particular, is portrayed in, in your two novels because it, it occupies such a central place. And, and uh, after reading the novels, uh, despite the tragedy that's there, I, I really wanted to go there and, and visit. Um, because, uh, especially because uh, you approach uh, the city from um, somewhat different angles, uh, one from almost a fable-like uh, uh, view and the other almost uh, from the, the ground up uh, uh, in the manner of war reportage. Um, I don't, maybe this is too broad a question, but what does Tehran mean to you? <laughs> you go there. You live there half the year. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I, the reason, uh, the Tehran that I write about is, is the Tehran that I remember. And I haven't seen Tehran since 1977 when I was 16, almost, uh, not even yet uh, 15. Um, so obviously, uh, it's, uh, you know, kind of fading uh, uh, the longer I, uh, I get away from it. Um, but it means two things for me. Great sadness, um, which is while I lived there, it was a very sad place. And uh, a great sense of betrayal. Sin, since I don't live there. And the sense of betrayal is because I feel like the country that was my country that I loved and felt I belonged to rejected me. Um, it's true it was a regime, but it's also true that at the time, and I know that Salah will, will speak about this, you know, things are not nearly the way they seem to us in the West, but, but at the time there were 
tens of millions of people uh, begging for Khomeini to go back and begging for that regime and, and, and that uh, mentality. Uh, and so I, I think perhaps uh, rather irrationally, but I take that rather personally. I feel like I was, uh, uh, you know, I was, the door was closed on me and uh, there's a sense of betrayal there. Yeah, I, I can understand Gina's feeling and I have a lot of friends who have left Iran at various times, even, <laughs> even up to five years ago, and who have, you know, who have, who have chosen to uh, actually make a divide uh, and uh, see Iran from a particular lens. And once, once you make a decision in life, uh, then that decision, you know, leads to other, you, you know, you almost have to walk this path. And, uh, you know, I chose the other path. And so I'm very protective of Tehran especially, but Iran in particular. And when I see its misrepresentations in the, in the West, uh, it, it really, I, I feel it in a personal way on the other side that Gina feels. And, but on, on the other hand, I can understand it's it's an extreme it's a leviathan of a city and and it's a, it's a difficult place it can be a brutal place and it can also be very compassionate and beautiful and culturally it's it's a extremely uh, vital place but ultimately it comes down to as uh, one of the writers in Tehran Noir, I mean, the narrator in the, in the story talks about, uh, it's, the, it's the, from the point of view of a journalist who decides who, who is lo a lot of his uh, um, colleagues have gone and gotten good jobs with BBC Persian, Voice of America, uh, the other place from Prague, you know, and he talks, the narrator talks about, you know, I could have gone to those places and I could have, you know, collected a paycheck beaming news about Iran to Iran and, uh, but I chose to stay. I chose to stay in this dirty, chaotic, uh, crazy, oftentimes cruel place because I am a journalist. I am a writer, and to do what I do best, I have to stay in my own country. And I'm a believer in that. And I have friends who believe the exact opposite. I honor and respect that, but it's not my road, you know. In response to that, I, I, I don't know how I can formulate this in the form of a question. <laughs> this is in jeopardy, but <clears throat> even as you uh, uh, express great love for Tehran and Iran. Um, in both of your works, uh, you seem very, very uh, cognizant of how treacherous some of the social customs, social expectations, the social pressures can be, um, and how even um, coercive they can be. Uh, though, of course, uh, when those, the characters move to move back to the US, in some respects, those pressures get uh, reinforced and then doubled because now you have uh, American pressures that are thrown into the mix. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, 
distinctions, if there are any, between the kinds of, of social pressures, uh, vicious at times, uh, experienced in Tehran um, and uh, those that are experienced in the U.S. Yeah. Want me? Um, well, in a nutshell, the, 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 the really the only social pressure in the U.S. Uh, maybe is uh, money. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's. Uh, it's the great liberator, and at the same time, it's it's the great uh, imprisonator, uh, um, because uh, or, or or this is at least m has been my experience of it. Maybe maybe LA is worse than some places. Uh, uh, maybe not. But uh, you know, when we were in Iran, I we, we used to talk, and I was living there. We used to talk so much about what's great about the United States and it was always that the law applied to everyone and uh, you know the fact that I mean I, I was there during the Watergate uh, uh, proceedings and we used to talk every day at home my parents my grandparents I used to hear the grown-ups talk all the time about look at this this is a place where the president is held accountable right so, Many years later, um, and you know, I, I, I write about this in, in, in this book. Uh, we ran into Timothy Geithner, Hank Paulson, uh, what's his name of Goldman Sachs. You know, these were people who uh, defied the law, uh, ignored it, broke it knowingly, and what they got as punishment was reappointment to their cabinet posts. <laughs> Uh, you know, special legislation in the case of Hank Paulson to help him not pay $50 million in taxes. They passed a law just for Hank Paulson and so on. And so when you see this, when you see that the lie applies to everyone, even the president, unless you're rich, then it, uh, it, it, it redefines so much. So, so, so that's about America. The thing about uh, about the social pressures in uh, in more traditional countries is that um, to belong to the tribe, you have to observe the laws. You have to live by those rules. And yes, the rules become even more uh, stringent when you are living in a smaller community, in a sort of an exile community. The good news is, and this I always say, especially for minorities, for Iranian Jews, for Iranian Zoroastrians, Baha'is, and so on, the best thing that happened to all of us is the revolution. Because with the revolution and having, having to leave Iran, we gave ourselves an option. You can belong now to the tribe in exile and play by those rules, but you also have this option of forsaking the tribe and, and doing your own thing, which in many ways I, I have done with, with, with every book. I think I'm probably the most unpopular Iranian living in Los Angeles. I, you know, but I am the second most. The most unpopular Iranian is the guy in the book who ran a Ponzi scheme and destroyed like 300 families uh, around 2008. I'm right behind him, but uh, for different reasons. Uh, that was a real person, by the way. That's, the uh, is real, yes. Uh, we have a Persian saying uh, to 
to keep uh, your cheeks red by slapping it yourself. Because you have, if you have a red cheek, it, it speaks of health and well-being and being financially well-off. It's all that whole Eastern notion of saving face. And, uh, and that notion is very strong in, in these societies. And it creates all kinds of complications and frustrations and pressures on people. Uh, that's one thing. So, um, so when I say that I'm protecting above Iran and particularly Tehran, I understand all of its issues, particularly for women. Um, I just recently, a couple of weeks ago, translated, edited and translated a piece uh, by an Iranian journalist who works in Iran and has chosen to stay. And it, the, the name of the piece is How to Be a Woman in Tehran. And she talks about all the difficult. She talks about, for instance, every time she goes to a real estate office and uh, when they find out she's a woman living alone, you know, they go from uh, asking her to be their second wife or <laughs> having an affair with them or, you know, being a, you know, like, you know, these things are real. And once they find out, once they see that she, she won't go for it, then, you know, give, they give her a hard time in other ways. So these things are real. These, these societies have serious, serious issues and uh, it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. In here in America, for me, I'm, ab I'm able in general to blend in very well if I, if I wish to, you know, and it's, I think it's a defensive mechanism that you learn when you come here. Um, uh, but it always catches up to you, and if you, it's particularly at certain moments in history, if you're from a certain place, for instance, Iran, then it manifests itself depending on many things. You know, you can, you can be Iranian who is darker in color. It's going to manifest itself differently than if you're, not, if you're lighter skinned. You know, so like my experience was very different from my late brothers who had darker skin. And, uh, you know, I won't get into how that manifested itself. So there's, with America, there's so many issues that get complicated with race and immigration. But the way it manifests itself for me in my actual writing is that, uh, let's say, reviewers and, you know, I'm grateful for all the attention both Gina and I have had. You know, it's writing life is a difficult life, but we seem to have made it to an extent. Uh, but it's interesting to look at, let's say, Tehran at Twilight. One, one main character in it is, is, a, is an American former Marine captain who becomes also best friends with the main character. And it's interesting to see that even the best of reviews about the book never mention that aspect of it. It's as if I, an Iranian writer, an Iranian-American writer, should not go to those places. I'm, I am competent to write about Iranians, but if I want to write about a uh, marine captain, uh, then, you know, it's just, it's these blind spots that for me as a writer really uh, give me pause and make me wonder if I have a place in this country at the end of the day. 
Can I tell you something about that? Uh, I, I wrote a novel called Sunday Silence. Um, and it's a, a story, it's a novel about relig religious extremism and how at our extremes we're really very much the same. And it was inspired, I wrote it because when I was on tour for my second novel, all the questions were, well, a lot of the questions were about, you know, how can people in the Middle East believe such ridiculous notions uh, such as, you know, if you kill uh, an American, you'll go to hell and there's 77, or is it 77? Or something, and a certain number of virgins waiting for you and... and Seventy or seventy-two. Virgins so. <laughs> um, waiting for you, and I kept saying, "Well, you know, how can uh, uh, people who talk in tongues and uh, um, handle snakes and stuff believe uh, believe that stuff?" Anyway, so I wrote this book, and it, it's, uh, it, it juxtaposes the East and the West. Part of it takes place in, among the holy rollers in this country, and part of it is about this Kurdish Jewish woman who who comes to this country. And after that, the reviews came out and they were all wonderful. And they all said, oh, she's captured America exactly. And all the people from the region wrote about it and said, I, I, I got it. You know, I hit the nail right on the head, etc." But audiences, the minute I would tell them what the book is about, people would laugh. And I'd gone there to do a reading or a talk, and I would have to stop and say, why are you laughing? You know, and, and it, it was as if for an Iranian to write about anything that is so particularly American as, you know, born-again uh, religion uh, was just uh, inconceivable, which really the purpose of literature is yeah. to be able to imagine yourself in places that you can't be physically. Right? And then on that note, and this will be the final question before we open it up, um, in both of your novels, uh, African-Americans uh, play a crucial role uh, Candace, the, uh, James's uh, girlfriend, um, and then Cornelius, <laughs> the rapper, <laughs> the rapper. Oh, he's the <laughs> Okay, so I, I wondered if you want to talk about the uh, the presence of African Americans who play um, from a plot point of view, and also in in, in, the, in terms of the vision of the novel, such crucial roles. Twice in my life I've had, I've been in real car trouble, as in stranded in the middle of like a highway, not being without a cell phone, not being able to cross the freeway to get to the call booth, you know, that kind of stuff. And both times the only person who stopped to help me was an African-American. And... Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, a, a little example. In, in many ways, what, you know, in, in, in Persian, we say somebody holdare means that they have a certain soul that, is, is, uh, that rises to some kind of kindness uh, when, when necessary, right? And I think that African Americans have that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know so much about African Americans to be able to, you know, make it, make a general comment. But 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 there is a sense for me that you know they they are in many ways much closer to to more traditional Eastern cultures than your you know average white person. Uh, for me, it was based um, on personal 
personal experience when I was going to college in California uh, in the late 80s. Uh, you know, I got to be friends with a lot of uh, African Americans who had uh, turned to Islam uh, and were trying to uh, trying to understand what they had, you know, what they had taken on. So they would come to, you know, our, our Middle Eastern Studies department and take the same classes as I did. So I became interested to, for the whole, to the, uh, in the whole issue of uh, converts, converts to Islam, and African Americans were just one tangent of that. So they basically they they figured quite uh, strongly in both. Uh, the Poet Game, my first novel, and my second novel, Opium 2, because of that, because of my own experiences uh, with them. And then uh, with the third novel, with this novel, uh, Tehran at Twilight, uh, where I teach, uh, City University of New York, the city college, the oldest campus, uh, is in Harlem. Uh, and. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, there's a huge immigrant community and also uh, Hispanic and African-American community. So this sort of became my, the world I know really well. And in the novel, Candace, the, uh, the African-American student and uh, the former Marine captain who's gotten a teaching position there, they become a couple. and. Uh, that brings up all kinds of issues about this white guy, ex-marine, and this this young woman, and uh, the uh, that causes issues uh, and makes makes the main character who cares about this young African American woman as a person uh, asks him asks his friend point blank, "Are you doing this as a form of benevolent condescension? You want to, or is it? Are you do you really love this girl?" So. But African Americans play, you know, just by default, they just play a huge role in my everyday life because of where I live and what I see. Now, um, <coughs> maybe we can open it up now to the floor uh, for other questions or comments. I try to stay under the radar there, <laughs> but you know they they know what I'm what I'm doing, you know, and uh, uh, what I do sometimes is write articles in Persian, or I write them. There is a journalist that I work with, or I'll write something and she'll translate it into Persian for the for the journals there. Are, uh, but uh, you know, there's the issue of censorship and. Actually, we have a noted Iranian writer who I just, just so came in, and he's written this uh, a very interesting novel about that that was translated into English. So the issue of censorship is something that is very acute in a place like Iran, right? So uh, my sorts of novels, not not because I have never I have never I've never been an activist. Uh, it's just not my cup of tea, and I've never advocated the downfall of any government. You know, I'm, 
it's not that I'm not political, but I, I really am fairly apolitical that way. <laughs> I, I care about the everyday lives of people more than, you know, these huge structures. So I think, you know, they kind of leave you be as long as you, you know, but certainly you can't pop, you can't, even if you translate it into Persian, you're not going to be able to publish it. And I've, I could have a tra I could translate them myself here, but, and, but I've never gotten around to it. It hasn't been my, you know, I haven't given it uh, enough, enough thought yet. But at some point, I would like to do that. I would like that to happen, especially with the Tehran Noir stories. I would like to see them in Persian one day again. I have a question for you. Yeah. May I? Yes, please. So, uh, I forget his name. He, uh, the friend who was... Uh, <coughs> A student here, and then went back to to Iran to and and became became sort of an activist anti-American, right? Mm -hmm. In the north, what's his name? Sina. Sina. It, this happens a lot. People come from all over the world. They come to this country. They 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 go to the schools, and some of them are liberal schools, like Berkeley, and some of them are not so, like MIT. And then they, even while they're here, or once they go back, they become anti-American. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? I think about it all the time <laughs> because I've seen it so many times. Yeah. Is it, what is it that, that they see that makes them, is it, is it, because I mean a college offers a more or less liberal education, right? So is it the fact that they come from a place where everything is censored and, and, and closed and forbidden to a place where it's all open and then all of a sudden they, they choose what is uh, most uh, uh, prevalent at home, which is anti-Americanism? Is that what it is? Um, you know, what I see, like, in Iran, I know a lot of young people who really hate being there, and they would do anything to leave, right? Anything. The reverse of that is, you know, in America, as, as a great society as it is, it certainly took me in and you and gave, us, gave me life. Um, I think oftentimes what I've seen happen is, Besides that search for identity, eh, that uh, I've said this before in our panels, you know, the, f the fabric of society is sort of all over the place. And in America, so many things are going on at the same time, you know. So that, that search for identity can take various forms. And uh, what complicates that is what you jokingly referred to earlier in in our discussion, but it's so true. And it's, it's a question of money. Uh, you know, the rest of the world has less money in Iran, for instance. People have less money, especially because of the sanctions. But oftentimes, they just seem to live more peaceful lives in a strange kind of way with very little. Whereas here in America, it seems like you're always one step behind no matter how much you make, you're one step behind your bills, you're this, you're that. Friends call me from Iran or even Europe, and I'm always saying, I'm so busy, you know, I can't catch up with myself, I need a break. And I think at some, for a lot of people, like, uh, that break happens, you know, and they just, they want to go to something simpler maybe. 
and that couples with the search for identity and then they find it. I mean, I certainly started thinking about that long time ago, or 20 years ago when I started thinking about converts to Islam. And there's truth to that. And all of these things come together. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, these are, uh, it's amazing to me that people who study Islam or Middle East or, you know, sociology, like, they don't understand, they don't see these basic things. They keep saying, well, why? But, you know, like, just if you go out in the world and you look at how people live, how America is, it can sometimes backfire, you know, and... But see, I, I wonder, because one of the things that, that has really fascinated me is how um, immigrant groups who escape orthodoxy and extremism and all the limitations and restrictions, especially women, uh, in their home countries, come to the United States and after a short while, they all choose a different version of orthodoxy. So, or, or in the West, right? So, so you have all the Muslims who have left uh, Africa or, or uh, Arab countries presumably because things were not so great here, there, and I've moved here, and then all of a sudden they're really sticking to the veil and the, you know, the, the uh, prayer f f three times a day and five times a day. Same thing with Jews, especially Iranian Jews, for example, who had, there was no, no version of uh, Judaism, of Orthodox Judaism, didn't exist. And Iranian Jews are the oldest Jews uh, in diaspora. There's 3,000 culture is 3,000 years old, and all of a sudden in America they're all becoming Lubavitchers and black hatters <laughs> and, you know, wearing the wig and the hat and the beard and the pace and all of that. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I think it's sort of similar to what happens with these students is that uh, there is so much, you know, if you've come from a place where everything has always been dictated to you, there's one version of history and it's entirely fictional. Right? And then all of a sudden you come out and you see, you know, there are many different versions and there are many different ways of thought. And it, it, it becomes cumbersome, it becomes difficult. And so you opt for that simpler version of things, which in the long run leads to certain forms of political extremism. It's just an idea. I'm working on it still. I, I wonder if it isn't also related to what you earlier called tribalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, because in, in, in the novel, when, when that heart glows of, of Jonah, um, Angela recognizes the, the connection to the past and the connection to her family. And, and it's very moving. It's a deeply moving moment um, because there is, you, still, you feel that visceral and spiritual uh, pull of the tribe, uh, both the, the individual family as well as the larger tribe of, of Iranian Jews. Mm -hmm. um, even as, as Angela spends so much time trying to break from that, that terrible past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's always a home to go to. Uh, if you abide by, by all the laws, they will, uh, uh, you'll, you'll have acceptance in a way that you don't really in the, in yeah. the you know, big bad world. Um, but I mean, just on a personal note, I, I, I find this. The, the, this, the fact that people take advantage of the college education that this country gives, a lot of times for free, and then turn against it. This, I think, is the most egregious. 
And I say that because I remember I, I lived in Europe before I came to the I went to boarding school in Europe, and my uh, graduating class was eight students, you know. And uh, in, in Iran, uh, uh, again, everything was dictated by the Shah. They used to rewrite the, all the history books, mm -hmm. science books, geography, everything. Everything was sort of the version of the ruling monarch or now the regime. Uh, and I remember when I came here and I went to university and I saw as if the universe had suddenly erupted right in front of my eyes and I saw the possibilities of learning and exposure and it's a gift that is just beyond, beyond value. Uh, and so people taking that and then blaming America for whatever else, that I find really egregious. I'm looking at Solar as if it's his fault, but. facing intense racism when they come from Iran to the States. You know, we face so much racism at home. The fundamentalism or the radicalization. I just wonder whether, you know, that they come and then they they understand actually who they are. No, no, we face so much racism at home, a lot more racism mm -hmm. in, in our home countries than we face in this. We, we do face racism, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. But it's nothing but I'm compared to. I'm wondering whether the younger students coming over, mm -hmm. you know, do, are always under suspicion here. Uh, there, are, there are elements of that. I mean, even with my own undergrad students, let's say from Bangladesh mm -hmm. or. Uh, some other places, they'll they'll come to me sometimes, and they'll and they reach out to me because of you know yeah. where I'm from, and they'll yeah. they'll you know I've seen I've seen the the birth of rage in in some of my students. I've seen the moment where something clicks, and you know I do what I can. But I want to go back to something just real quick, and that's you know in, what happens is in America, it's almost like being uh, victim of your own success. I often talk a joke about it with my writer friends. Uh, or I remember years ago, I think Gore Vidal had just won National Book Award or something, and somebody in the audience asked him, well, are you, do you consider for yourself a famous writer? And he said, well, I used to be one, but in this day, and that was a long time ago, he said that, I think 20 years ago, he said, but in this day and age, like nothing really matters or makes a difference. And you see that, uh, I see it in my own field. Uh, I see it in academia, I see it in, in the writing business. It's like you write, and the thing is, there's a lot, lot of really capable people here, like doing amazing things. And what happens is that uh, you can become easily bitter because you want your just reward for the things you do and maybe this, you know, and America is on its own calendar, right? They, you know, one, one year they have to, I don't know, have to have an Asian, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give the example of the writing business, but you know, it, it happens in many areas, you know, or Caribbean or African American. And what happens is that that creates bitterness in people and that bitterness can manifest itself in all kinds of ways when you think that when you feel that you know here I'm living in New York you know the best the best minds and truly I see the best minds in the world in their various fields there any given day 
and uh, you know there's almost so, there's only so much to go around you know and then what happens that bitterness in, in younger people or sometimes older people manifests itself in really you know, disturbing ways I can't you know I can't call it egregious because that's not how I see it but it's really disturbing to see it and then it's even more disturbing when it puts into motion certain wheels that really complicate the world we live in. That's why Americans, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. It came from yesterday. May I, you know, I have a, in, from, in my undergrad class, I have this young student, Arab student. Uh, he's uh, from Iraq. His, uh, his family had to escape Iraq uh, because Saddam was going to kill them. And then later on, when they were living in Prague, Saddam was still going to kill them in Prague, so they came to D.C. And, you know, yesterday we were talking and he said, you know, I, uh, I, I wept when Saddam died. And here I had been like thinking, you know, like everybody had thought, you know, liberation from this man who, you know, executed a lot of people. And so when I see that in this kid who has actually known true hardship because of that regime, it just shows you just how complicated these things are, you know. And so Did when you see why he went? He thought, he was convinced that Saddam was a great nationalist and I kept Iraq together. And when you look at Iraq today, you can see where, how that thinking comes about. You know, you can see how that kind of thinking comes about. So when Americans say, like, you know, these generals or, you know, uh, intelligence analysts, they, they, you know, these think tanks that I talk about, when they say they don't understand why something is happening or when they give these prognoses that are completely off. It's, it's amazing to me because if, you know, if you just delve into this stuff a little bit, if you, if you, if you go a little deeper, you, you're going to understand that it's very complex and things happen. Everything that happens has a reason for it. and it's, It doesn't come out of the thin air. And, it's, and I think maybe on, on this note we can end. It's really through novels that you get a, a deeper understanding of why that kind of phenomena, which is beyond, in certain respects, rational uh, analysis, uh, actually exist. Um, but <clears throat> I'm afraid we're out of time. So uh, uh, thank you.